0: Hey y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today, which means you might hear two hosts. Enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello, I'm Holly Fry, and I am sitting in this week for Tracy V. Wilson. It's December 29th. And we are talking today about an event that happened in 1890, which was the Wounded Knee Massacre. But first, we have to talk about the Ghost Dance. The Ghost Dance was a spiritual movement, originally established in 1869 by a Paiute dreamer called Wadzuab. And while in a trance state, Wadzuab dreamed that the spirits of the departed were going to return and make the world into a paradise of eternal life without conflict among peoples. Based on his visions, he began to urge people to perform a traditional round dance over a series of nights as a form of religious practice. This was intended to connect to the land of the dead, with the promise that the souls of the departed would come back to their loved ones in several years. And his ghost dance, as it was called, caught on and spread from Mason Valley in Nevada to California and up the Pacific coast. Wadzuab died in 1872, and the ghost dance movement, which was still in its infancy, faded out from practice. But that wasn't actually the end of the ghost dance. It was revived by Jack Wilson, who also went by Wovoka in the 1880s, after he had a vision during an eclipse, and he began to preach to the Paiute people that their deceased ancestors would return from the dead, and that white people would eventually be gone from the earth, and that peace, health, and prosperity would return to the Native American tribes. And to ensure that this cleansing and transition to a new world of prosperity happened, according to Wavoka, the ghost dance had to be performed for five nights in a row, and then those five nights of dancing repeated every six weeks. Now, at this point in history, relations between Native Americans and the U.S. government were not good. The U.S. had repeatedly broken treaty agreements, virtually every one they had signed with the Native Americans. And they also pushed Native Americans onto smaller and smaller parcels of land and reservations so that the land that they had lived on for, in many cases, years and years and years, could be seized. The Ghost Dance was an entirely pacifist movement, which forbade violence. But just the same, it terrified the U.S. government, which did not understand it. Over the course of 1890, there was increasing consternation on the part of the government and military that this embrace of traditional customs and the rejection of white culture would lead to trouble. From the white field agent perspective, they saw large numbers of Native Americans gathering, and they jumped to conclusions that they were doing something threatening. And by this point, the ghost dance had spread once again, and some of the Lakota Sioux had begun to practice it. There had also been an addition to the dance of so-called ghost shirts decorated with red paint and other ornamentation, which they believed would protect them from bullets fired by the guns of white men. A large gathering of people traveled in December to see the Lakota leader sitting bull and practice the ghost dance together. Believing that the Native Americans were practicing a war dance as a prelude to an uprising, Indian agency police moved in to arrest Sitting Bull on December 15th of 1890. And this led to a fight in which Sitting Bull was killed. Two weeks later, a group of ghost dancers, having fled Standing Rock Reservation where Sitting Bull had been killed, were captured and brought to a camp at Wounded Knee Creek with the Lakota Sioux chief spotted elk by the U.S. Army's 7th Cavalry. That was on December 28th. The camp was surrounded by the military with an armed perimeter. On the morning of the 29th, an Army colonel named James Forsyth demanded that the Lakota disarm. There is conflicting information as to how things unfurled from there. The Lakota may have begun their ghost dance, agitating the soldiers, but we don't know for certain. A young Lakota man named Black Coyote refused to disarm, according to accounts by white soldiers. But Lakota accounts of the incident indicate that Black Coyote was deaf and he simply did not understand the command to disarm. But as an attempt was made to forcibly take Black Coyote's rifle, the gun went off. And this catalyzed an intense, short-range firefight. Because of the close quarters, some cavalry members were firing on their fellow soldiers at times. And when the whole thing ended, less than an hour after it had begun, between 150 and 300 Lakota were dead. Tabulation of that number is inconsistent. Inconsistent. An estimated half of the Lakota who had been killed were women and children, and 31 U.S. cavalrymen were also killed. If you would like to hear more about this tragic incident, there is an episode in the Stuff You Missed in History class archive by previous hosts Sarah and Katie that was originally aired in 2009. I want to thank Chandler Mays and Casey Pegram for their always amazing work on the audio for this podcast. And if you would like to subscribe to This Day in History class, I encourage you to do so. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You should also check in with This Day in History class tomorrow, but I'm afraid it is another tragedy.
0: Hey, everyone. I'm getting some much-needed R&R in the comfort of my home. But just because I'm resting doesn't mean history stops. Let's get on with another episode. The day was December 29th, 1996. Guatemalan President Alvaro Artesu and the Guatemalan National Revolutionary Unity, or URNG, signed peace accords ending the 36-year-long Guatemalan Civil War. In 1954, the United States Central Intelligence Agency backed a coup to overthrow the democratically elected Guatemalan president, Jacobo Arbenz. Right-wing Guatemalan Army Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas led the coup. American anti-communist fear was at a high, and Arrebentz was deemed a communist threat. He had legalized the Guatemalan Communist Party, and his land reform threatened major landowners, particularly the U.S.-based United Fruit Company. Arrebentz was forced to resign and went into exile. Armas took power in Guatemala and reversed reforms from the last decade and returned land to the United Fruit Company. Throughout the rest of the 1950s, government corruption was common, leftist political parties were banned, and poverty was rampant. Armas was assassinated in 1957, but military personnel continued to take power. But the Guatemalan Civil War did not begin until November of 1960, when the country was under the autocratic rule of General Hidrigarás Fuentes. A group of junior military officers attempted a revolt against the government and failed. But some of them went into hiding and established contact with Fidel Castro's Cuban government. By 1962, they had established an insurgent movement known as MR-13. And from there, the conflict escalated. Left-wing guerrilla groups began fighting government military forces. There were demonstrations, riots, and strikes in Guatemala City. With the assistance of the U.S., the Guatemalan armed forces engaged in anti-guerrilla warfare. The conflict was especially brutal, marked by violence, abductions, and state terror. In 1966, civilian rule was restored and Julio Cesar Méndez Montenegro, the candidate of the Moderate Revolutionary Party, was elected president. But violence and terror intensified, as the army launched a counterinsurgency campaign that broke up guerrillas in the countryside. Guerrilla attacks continued in Guatemala City, though. After Colonel Carlos Arana Osorio assumed the presidency in 1970, he declared a state of siege, so that the military imposed more control over civilians, including a curfew in home searches. Throughout the rest of the 1970s, a series of military governments perpetrated violence against guerrilla groups and anyone who seemed to support their cause. Guatemala's indigenous people had been subjected to discrimination over the years, and many of them fought in the Civil War. Their communities were hit hard in the violence of the conflict. In 1981, the Inter-American Human Rights Commission issued a report that said the Guatemalan government was responsible for thousands of missing people and illegal executions throughout the 1970s. A particularly bloody part of the Civil War were the years under the dictatorship of General Efraín Ríos Montt. He resorted to using a scorched-earth policy, and indigenous Mayans were murdered en masse. But the war he had pledged to end escalated, and in August of 1983, he was overthrown by General Oscar Humberto Mejia Victores. The new president promised a return to the democratic process. Two years later, a new constitution was approved, and presidential elections resulted in the victory of civilian President Marco Vinicio Cerezo Arevalo peace talks between the government and rebels of the Guatemalan Revolutionary National Unity began in 1994. But the Civil War raged on until 1996, when President Alvaro Arzu was elected. He finalized the peace negotiations, and on December 29th, he signed a peace agreement ending the Guatemalan Civil War. More than 200,000 people were killed over the course of the war. Most of the people who were killed were Mayans. The army was responsible for the majority of the human rights abuses committed. Rios Montt was convicted of genocide and crimes against humanity, but his conviction was later overturned. A court later ruled that he would not be sentenced if found guilty in a retrial due to his senility. He died in 2018 while his trial was ongoing. The effects of the war resounded into the 21st century. Poverty, crime, Violence and human rights violations continue to plague the country. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you want to hit us up on social media, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TDIHCPodcast. If you want to email us, you can reach us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again tomorrow.
1: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.